All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording once again from the Upper West Side. And the fact that I'm in an apartment building may become clear to listeners soon because uh, the little people above me, (laughs) um, (laughs) kids are running running around. (laughs) I can can hear them. Uh, With me as usual, the the giggler in the background. The giggler extraordinaire. The man who really needs no introduction at this point, but we'll do it anyway, just to be, uh, you know, formal. Uh, <laughs> let's, just keep, let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> That's Michael Chauvin Dalton. Michael uh, Chauvin Dalton, everyone. Hello. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. You know, enjoying... Uh, Everything about the weather, but the pollen. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like the subtext or like the the plot B of the podcast is Michael and Sasha's allergies. Um, yes. But yeah, <laughs> it sniffling. is. Yes. Yeah, the sniffling. It is really beautiful. Oh my gosh, everything is. The past few days has just really exploded into bloom here here in the city for sure. Cherry blossoms landing on our head. Um, <laughs> so. So what's going on? How's school? How's everything? Our classes are are moving along nicely. Um, You know, students are able to get out more and photograph. And uh, we had, uh, you know, it's it's been a long kind of slog teaching darkroom uh, because you have to do it in pieces and parts and from a distance. But uh, actually, we had some great breakthroughs yesterday. I was really proud of my students. Uh, They were all making fantastic prints. So that made me very happy. That's exciting. It is. It's actually. It was actually really good. Yeah. Are they yeah. shooting on thirty-five millimeter? Yeah, thirty-five millimeter black and white film. We give them cameras. We give them film. What cameras we give them paper. do you give them? Oh, it's it's all the older mechanical cameras, K one thousands and and yeah, my first camera. I love the. It's the everyone loves the, the K one thousand. It's, it's so, so funny good. because when I had when I was I loved it when I when it was my camera in high school. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that like. I, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, and so often the things that my folks would get me would be, you know, not the expensive versions of things. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I was, sometimes I would look over at, like, the one other person I knew who made photographs, and he had a much more expensive... <laughs> <laughs> the Minolta X700. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like... I don't know, but then I loved my camera, and I loved the fact that the K1000 is fully manual, so it actually yeah. you makes you, you have to learn. I mean, you can't, there's no shortcuts, and there's no relying on, you know, the camera to make decisions. You have to make the decisions. So I, th- I think I knew that then, but for sure, in hindsight, I was like, oh my God, this was the best camera to have. Yeah, we even um, st- still have some Minolta SRTs that we give students, and you know, the batteries die and you get to still use your camera. That's yeah. the beauty of it. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> um, God, God, I love that camera. I, 
Okay, I could do a, yep. could do a whole podcast <laughs> about the Pentax K1000. <laughs> but that's great. That's great that the students are you know, really learning those. It's just so funny because it was it was frustrating, and all of a sudden, like breakthrough. Yeah, all just beautiful tones. Everyone's printing on a number two filter, and if you know what that means, then you'll appreciate that. <laughs> I I fear that there are probably a lot of listeners who are fully digital and may not know what you're talking about when you <laughs> talk about that. But I do. I know contrast. <laughs> <laughs> I had the wonderful experience this weekend of, um, this is a big reason why I came home, uh, of getting boxes of prints for to review from various artists. So mm-hmm. I had a, uh, an incredible over-the-phone session with Adam Katzoff, who sent me yes, a whole bunch of post. new yeah. work. And um, that was just fantastic experience chuck kelton dropped off a whole bunch of new work and chris greaves and i finished assembling his portfolios we now have the whole physical object and anyway it's just it's been so exciting sort of getting back into yeah handling prints and you know doing doing what i love Uh, you must just get the the most beautiful prince i i get i get great care packages yeah <laughs> i get great great care packages and in fact what's really exciting is i'm planning my first trip i think will be up to um adam's house outside of boston to try and get this project over the finish line wow and the last trip i took other than going back and forth to woodstock but the last trip i took before shutdown was one week before lockdown i was up um in brookline with adam and and also working with barbara bosworth who was the last i added barbara to the roster right before lockdown and so i think my first trip out and that's just a coincidence but anyway it's just something wow, about yeah. it that feels really wonderful and moving to me personally and and really exciting of course i i love being with adam in the studio we have a great time anyway sorry i'm taking us down all sorts of um, <laughs> <laughs> scurrying out on different tree branches no but it's like the you squirrel know, i am yeah it's like you know getting back into full mode of you know work yeah 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 so we have a great episode today i spoke with ashwin davis burns who was for five years, the executive director of um, the Houston Center of Photography, and left to start her own business company called Assembly with Shane Lavalette, who is the executive director of Lightwork. So these two fantastic people joined forces to, to start their own business, both representing artists for fine art and also for uh, commercial endeavors and yes yeah I, I i thought it was a really great conversation yeah so this is a an organization that was a response to i think ashlyn refers to as an antidote to the structures that were crumbling during the pandemic i think that's uh you know something we might see a bit more of post pandemic of what the sort of new structures of art representation might come out of this um and you know ashlyn comes out of fundraising and development and there's a just a great storyline from going from that to this 
uh, because she has such an interesting philosophy about it. In fact, she says, you know, fundraising is matchmaking, which I really loved. Yeah. And of course, just I think I say this to her. It's just, you know, made me think that when you're fundraising for a nonprofit and you're asking for money, the way she talks about it just to me sounds like what it feels like when I'm trying to get clients to buy work, mm-hmm. right? It's I'm asking for money, but I'm also trying yeah. to, you know, put together the right person with the right artwork. Yeah. Yep. And it's such a great story of how uh, Ashlyn ends up in development. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I I think this is going to this is a great episode for our listeners. You know, I think that it's obviously we've done a couple of shows where I've been the sort of voice of the business side of mm-hmm. of the art world. I think it's really really nice to hear from someone else and especially someone who's doing something a little bit differently than I am and who's, you know, just starting out and has, you know, ideas that are very, very current. And right. and Ashwin is just so smart and likable. And um, <laughs> so anyway, I well, I hope everyone enjoys it. And as much as I enjoyed talking with Ashwin. And yeah, so if, Michael, if you don't mind, uh, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Ashlyn Davis Burns. <laughs> Ashwin Davis Burns, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for um, for hanging out with me on a um, Monday afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, well, you know, I I rope in my friends, and that way I get like dedicated time to hang out. I really do think that that is a serious, fantastic byproduct for me because um, you and I are friends, but we're both super busy and. We talk periodically, but we don't really like just sort of make an hour or two to get together and 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 talk on the phone. So I, I really um, feel like that's what we're doing now. So anyway, thank you. And and let's uh, start as we always do on the show. If you could just tell listeners a, a bit about yourself, so they don't have to Wikipedia you. Sure. So. I guess I can go, I can work backwards. So most recently, I founded Assembly, which I assume we will talk a little bit more about today with with Shane Lavalette. Um, But before that, I was at Houston Center for Photography for the past five years as their executive director and curator. And if we, you know, step backwards, before that, I was in an American Studies program at the University of Texas at Austin studying the history of photography, which is something I had kind of always been interested in. And, you know, I was in that was a PhD program. And I, I the nice way to say it is I mastered out. So <laughs> <laughs> which means, yeah, that I, I, I was in this long program and really interested in focusing on the history of photography in the American South and Really, it, you know, it's a personal subject for me. My my family goes back kind of untraceable amounts of generations in Southeast Texas. Um, and, you know, I really thought that I wanted to do this rigorous academic program, but I had this personal tragedy in my life that kind of kicked off my experience in grad school, and it was not for me. So, you know, I got the master's. I decided that you know, I was really good at fundraising and writing. During grad school, I had 
um, published Islands of the Blessed with Brian Scutmott, one of your artists. Yep. And, you know, it, it ended up being very well received. We, we turned it into an exhibition as part of the photo focus biennial in Cincinnati. And I kind of realized I had this like moment where I realized I can make my life in this world without having the PhD. You know, like I don't need to go the standard kind of curatorial track life. Um, so I decided to leave with my master's and was like, what am I going to do? <laughs> um, but throughout grad school, I had been doing fundraising for, for artists. I was working with Aaron Treeb, who's a really remarkable photojournalist, um, on applying to grants. And for a summer, I lived in Portland with another amazing photographer named Jen Trail. And I worked for New Space Center for Photography and, and raised money to start their curatorial program. So I knew that I could raise money and I was like, I'm, I'm just going to go into fundraising and do these other book publishing and writing projects on the side because that's what fulfills me. And like two weeks after I kind of made that decision internally, a job opened up at Houston Center for Photography for a director of development, which is a job that they never really had before. Um, so I applied and I got it. And then within 10 months of starting the job, the, the executive director at the time, Sarah Sudoff, who's a really great photographer herself, she stepped down and I was asked to apply to be the ED. So I was about 28 years old then and was like, I really, I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> and several months went by and I was asked again and I applied and it was a really long hiring process. They interviewed many people and, and ended up choosing me to be the ED. So that, you know, really was a major kind of turning point in my life of going from, you know, I'll do these creative projects to kind of sustain my spirit in a sense and sustain my interest in the photo world while I fundraise to being able to, to kind of actualize the two in an actual position at Houston Center for Photography. But to kind of step it back a little bit Further, um, I, I went to Pratt for my undergrad and I studied art history and, you know, did the typical interning at galleries in Chelsea along the way. Um, but I was also a musician and, you know, played in bands and toured my entire time through my undergraduate studies and really thought I was going to focus on music. But when I graduated, I discovered the Aperture Work Scholar program and applied and, and became their work scholar in the development department. So again, fundraising. And at the time, I didn't really know what development was. I just knew that through that position, I would learn how a nonprofit functions. And I was at Aperture during this really interesting time where they were going through a leadership transition of their executive director and they were also really rethinking the magazine and the publication and just the organization entirely. And the work scholars were really involved in those kind of organization-wide conversations. So I got to see what it was like to navigate a nonprofit in transition. And in some ways, that really informed, I think, what I ended up doing at Houston Center for Photography. Um, so in a, a really big nutshell, that's kind of why I am where I am sitting here with you today. 
So first of all, no one has ever like Benjamin buttoned their bio. So I can't believe you went backwards. And that was just <laughs> it's so hard. awesome. <laughs> no, I loved it. It was amazing. I, I just love the creativity <laughs> even just to go backwards. It was just so great. I wanted to just yell at one point, you're going backwards. It's so cool. But I was listening to what you were saying. I also just want to point out, what phrase did you say you mastered out? I mean, that's just like, <laughs> I, I wish I'd known. I mean, I get that it's, you know, what you're saying is you left with your master's rather than your PhD. I just wish I could somehow figure out how to use that phrase to every part of my life that I fucked up. So instead <laughs> of being like, I fucked it up, just be like, oh, man, I mastered out of that. I don't know. I love that. It's just totally. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was the best. I basically mastered out of college, um, but without a master's. Anyway, so, okay, so yes, I do want to talk about assembly, but there's just so many nuggets in there. So I, d I just want to ask you, I, I just want to follow up on a few things. One, I had no idea you were a musician, and I almost feel embarrassed by that because obviously it's a huge part of your life. And so just out of total curiosity, um, were you... Uh, instrumentalist? Did, did you play? Did you sing? What did you do? Yeah, I did. I did everything. So I played guitar. Um, I played a Wurlitzer. Like I loved this Wurlitzer. We would hook it up to these pedals and get these really cool sounds out of it. Um, and then I sang. So it was kind of like a, it was a bunch of dudes who were really into metal, but who decided to start <laughs> like kind of a freak folk band. <laughs> Uh -huh, right on. So yeah, we we did that for several years and and toured a lot and it was great, but it's an exhausting lifestyle. Um, and I also I managed bands in Brooklyn. I mean, <laughs> I've kind of done everything. Yeah. So yeah, music is is really important to me. It's you know it's kind of I don't tell everyone about it, but I don't really play much anymore, and it's really sad. It's something I'm trying to get more back into. Well, I, I play guitar probably not as well as you, but next time you're in the city and you come over, which I, I'm sure <laughs> I hope you'll do, I, I have a bunch of guitars so we can just jam. And you oh can even, gosh. you know, maybe I'll get a lesson out of you um, or something. I like to sort of play with people and they don't really know they're actually teaching me. Yeah. Know, just yeah. absorbing things from them. So, okay. So that's a date. Um, the other thing I just think is sort of amazing is I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that they were like really passionate about fundraising. It's sort of <laughs> usually people talk about it being the part of their job that they put up with, um, especially executive directors who have to do a lot of fundraising usually in their role. But I, I imagine that, you know, fundraising at the end of the day, if you're fundraising for something you feel passionately about, it's probably not, I don't know, in some ways it's probably not that different from, you know, trying to sell you know, work by someone you love. Yeah, it's really not. I mean, it's matchmaking, just like you're not going to go sell a piece to someone who has no interest in that aesthetic or subject matter. And I think, you know, the way this comes full circle is that the question for me is always, how do you sustain this? How do you sustain the creative practice? How do you sustain the creative life? And fundraising is integral to that. And yeah. And yeah, it can be scary to some people because it's asking for money at the end of the day. That's what it is. But really, I mean, it's it's connecting the dots, you know, because people who want to support things are looking for those things to support. So there's an interest there. 
Um, yep. And if you're doing it the other way where you're just, you know, kind of begging people for money, then then you're not really doing development. You're just begging people for money. Right. That's right. No, that's, that's absolutely true. And of course, it's very important to realize that often the people that you're going to are adults. They're perfectly capable of saying no. I mean, I always right. say this to people. It's like in different contexts about asking for things and people get so anxious about it. And, you know, I'm always sort of reminding people, like, people will say no, they're capable of saying no, particularly a certain group of people who are being asked for things a lot. You know, people who have a lot of money are very good at saying no, they don't need you to worry about them, you're not going right. to inconvenience them, they'll just not return your call or your email, if exactly. they're not interested. It's a really <laughs> easy technique, you know, I mean, so, you know, don't worry so much. Yeah, and don't take it so personally, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Although, to be honest, I sometimes still take things personally. Like, you know, sometimes when I feel really passionately about a project, and I reach out to a client, or this doesn't happen much with clients, it happens way more with curators. And it's someone I know, and I think I have a relationship with, and I never hear back from them. <laughs> I, yeah. I was just saying this to my friend, I think I said it on the podcast recently, and I was just talking to my friend Tom Gitterman, who's a good friend of mine and a colleague, Gitterman Gallery. Um, yeah, but I was yeah. talking to Tom about it. And he was like, he was just calling to say, hey, and I was sort of grumpy. And he was like, what's the matter? And I was like, oh, I wrote to X, Y, and Z, you know, a couple days ago about this project. And why won't they just write me back, you know, and you know, it it's silly. And of course, Tom was like, get over it. And I was like, I know, I just want to be grumpy about it for a half an hour. And then I'll get over it. No, I'm totally there. Yeah, you have to work through the feelings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to acknowledge them and then let them be on their way. Uh, <laughs> this is gonna turn into a Buddhism I know. Uh, podcast, <laughs> my, one of my other favorite topics. So, so let's talk about assembly. I mean, you know, obviously, I have questions about working at HCP, but I don't want too much time to go by. And I've already taken us on a million tangents, which is my, my specialty. Um, so let's talk about assembly. So this is a new venture that you just formed with Shane. And how did you guys, can you tell me as much as you're comfortable um, sharing, but exactly like, how, how did this happen? Like, yeah. <laughs> how many conversations did you and Shane have? Was it a light bulb moment? Was it something you've been talking about for a long time? It, yeah, it was like one of those light bulbs that, you know, like there's some kind of there's like a ghost messing with it or something. It's like constantly flickering on and off. But Shane and I have known each other for, you know, over five years. And especially through all the goings on in the photo world, like APAD or Periphoto or different biennials, um, you know, got to know each other through meeting up at those events and and through other groups that kind of unite directors of these photo nonprofits. Right, because Shane was the director of Light Work and he was he was exactly. in uh, upstate New York, up upstate New York in Saratoga. In Syracuse, yep. Yeah. Syracuse, yeah. I always do that. Syracuse. So yeah, we, you know, that's kind of how we met and I think over the course of, you know, my time as an ED, I kind of realized like, oh, hey, that artist that we just exhibited is doing a residency now at Lightwork. That's amazing. Or vice versa. So we kind of realized that our interests in photography were fairly aligned and fairly similar. And then 
you know, again, navigating institutions that are going through different shifts would call each other and say, hey, what are you doing about this thing? Or, you know, WAGE, um, which is a, it stands for Working Artists in the Greater Economy, which was this big effort to to pay artists for their exhibitions to kind of remove that, that quote unquote payment of exposure that I think so many nonprofits had been doing. Like, how are you navigating wage? How did you get wage passed by your board? How are you handling that financially? So just talking through these different issues that we were each facing, you know, we got to know each other that way. And I think maybe around 2018, we we started really thinking about the models that we were using in our institutions and and looking at other models. I mean, we we were in Paris for Periphoto at the same time and went to Le Ball and like loved mm-hmm. Le Ball as an institution and the way in which they were creating community and creating a space for artists. And so we'd always been kind of like spitballing these ideas at each other, kind of in like, you know, a dream scenario kind of world. And then, you know, closer to the end of 2019, I knew that my time at HCP would be that I would want to move on at a certain point. I mean, nobody wants to stay in the same place forever. And I feel like I had kind of done what I needed to do at HCP. And so it was kind of informally thinking about next directions. And, you know, so again, Shane would kind of talk about that. And and then the pandemic hit. And we were all, all of the nonprofit EDs, you know, we were talking to each other both locally and then at the national level of like, what do we do now? Um, And how do we navigate this virtual landscape that we're forced to exist within, but maybe we don't necessarily have the tools for? And, and I called Shane and was like, we could still do something. Like, why not? The, the world is like in this totally unpredictable moment. Everything seems to be kind of crumbling in a way. The structures that we've talked about that didn't support our values are, are literally coming apart. And so why not take this opportunity to build something new? And, you know, we, we just started creating lists and thinking about like, what are the things we could do? And then when you shake it all out, what remains? And I think the constant like kind of core magnet that held all of these ideas together for us was again, how how do we create a sustainable support platform for artists? And, you know, we looked at how artists are already functioning. And of course, Shane is an artist himself. And it takes um, a lot of different, you cobble together a lot of different areas to create a sustainable life. No one, no one's surviving just on print sales. No one's surviving usually really just on commissions. No one's surviving just on book publishing or teaching. They're, they're doing all of these things. So, you know, that's really ultimately how it was kind of like a, a tiny snowball that just kept going downhill and picking up steam and, and solidifying itself in the process. So it was as much editing as it was, you know, kind of creating when when you think about the process of how we actually got to where we are now. So tell people exactly where you are now, what what Assembly does and yeah. what the model is. So we launched almost a month ago. Um, we're kind of a three-tiered 
platform. So we're we're operating like a gallery. We're also operating like an agency. And then we're operating as a creative studio. And, you know, I know there's like, there can be some vagueness in all of those things. But essentially, you know, we're working to support artists through the acquisition of their work, whether it's institutional or individual collectors. We're working with our roster on commissions for publications or brands, you know, fashion brands. And then in terms of a creative studio, you know, we're really, really wanting to embrace this kind of pop-up model of in-person experiences. So whether that's a pop-up exhibition or some kind of pop-up photo book discussion or program or publishing. So the other thing that we have done recently on the same week as our launch, we launched our first limited edition artist book, which was by Fumi Ishino called Index of Fillers. And it's a really small print run edition of 30 handmade artist books. So that creative studio component kind of encompasses a lot. And again, the the whole point is for us to be able to be responsive and nimble and respond not only to the needs of our artists on our roster, but to kind of the cultural environment in which we are existing, which which changes a lot and which I, I hope continues to change a lot in terms of more in-person experiences in the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. So you are representing artists like the classic model for both commercial representation and like me or like any other exactly. art dealer. And you guys started with 10 artists. I, I have so many thoughts about the mixing of commercial and fine art. And I, I know you guys are not the, the first to do it, but I'm, I'm, I don't do it. So I'm, I'm sort of just, I have questions because I'm, I'm curious exactly how it works. But let me just start by asking you something just sort of nuts and boltsy. How do you guys decide as two people on, because I, I don't have to, you know, get anyone to agree with me when I want to take on a, a new artist. <laughs> so how did you guys just decide on the roster of artists? It was a really long process. We we created a basically a, a shared drive and we would each contribute, you know, our ideas. All of the artists ultimately are, are artists that we've worked with in some capacity. So they're not new to us and we're not new to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, we just created this really long list of people who we were excited about and there were no parameters at all to that list. You know, we just kind of let let ourselves go crazy. And then again, in that kind of like calling things down and editing process is really when the shape of the roster became apparent. And so we didn't go in and say, okay, we want all artists who are, you know, identifying in this activist oriented practice. We didn't go in saying we want only artists who were born between these years. But I think what emerged was I think, a a pretty clear voice in the roster of everyone's working in an interdisciplinary way. Um, We don't really define it as an activist-oriented practice as much as a research-based practice. So you have people like Alejandro Cartagena who will spend years on a topic. It's not this kind of in-and-out thing, very socially engaged with their subject matter, and, and really walking the line between documentary and fiction in an interesting way, playing with that tension inherent in the medium. And I think, again, it wasn't something that we 
we said, okay, we want to do this. And we, we sought artists out to do that. It just is kind of where interests lie. And so that's what ultimately emerged. You know, that's clear. I mean, if, if, you know, on your website, you can, if you read through the artist bios, I think eight out of 10 refer to either identity, representation, culture, activism in, in the bio. And I, wa- I want to get to that and what that means exactly, because, you know, of course, all art is about identity mm-hmm. to some degree or another. It's just a matter of how overt and, you know, how broad a statement it is versus how personal and maybe more opaque. But what I was wondering is, you know, let's say you see an artist tomorrow whose work you're really madly in love with, but they sort of fit more into, you know, the the category of, of the sort of more personal and, and, and less broader cultural um, identity issues. So, you know, if, if you found like a Robert Adams or a Harry Callahan, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. would you, and you, let's say you loved the work, would you bring them on at this point or would they feel like an outlier and it would just be too bizarre? Now you've sort of created an identity for the brand that is assembly and you don't want to mess with that. You know, where does it, where does it fall? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And, you know, <laughs> one of the, the most uh, frequent inquiries we get right now is from artists saying like, hey, take me on. Um, and there's yeah, so many. Yeah, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's there's so many amazing artists working right now. You there know, are. it's yep. so hard. But And I think you've talked about this before, you know, either just us in conversation or maybe on the podcast. But you also have to set a limit, right, if you want to do oh, a yeah. good job. So. 10 feels very manageable to us at this moment in time. And again, you know, we've only launched, been out in the world publicly for a month. So I think it's going to take us time working through this current roster with this current roster to understand when we can bring others on and what that might look like. So I guess the the short answer is... I don't know. I mean, yeah. it's not necessarily that we want to stick to this, um, as you said, kind of brand identity of what we've created. It's it's just more work that we're really passionate about, and it happens to to look like this right now. But again, the beauty of of Shane and I being just two people, and you know, not a a board that we have to run this by, is that he and I just have to reach a consensus, and that has been something that has has come very naturally for us. So, you know, I think maximum one of us would have to convince the other. But yeah, I mean, I think the the possibilities are kind of open right now. We're not really putting those defining limits on what we're doing, aside from the fact that we know we want to focus on this roster of 10 for a while before we take others on. It must be really liberating for you, um, even though, you know, you, you and Shane do have to come to agreement, but it must be so liberating to not have a board of directors. I mean, yeah. I <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yes, yeah, of it's... course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's an interesting time for the nonprofit model. There are so many issues that are so deep rooted and systemic across the board, not just any one organization 
that really need to be worked out to create something that's sustainable for the organization and for the people who make up that organization. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's totally freeing to kind of go out and do something on your own, but then, and maybe you feel this too, it's also terrifying, you know, like at the end of the day. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you know, I just I wonder if this is you don't have to answer this, we can just skip over it. But I was I just wonder if it's something you know, you feel like you could have done if you weren't married, you know, with another income, because it can take quite a while to get something like this off the ground. Oh, totally. Yeah. But you know, kind of like I alluded to earlier, this kind of branching out and doing something was was something that had been on my mind for a while. And so I had been saving up and oh, good, um, so smart. Yeah, yeah, thinking I'm a very much like a, a thinking short and long term kind of person. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's my nonprofit experience, too. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I was given the opportunity and I'm taking it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> very easily, you know, just sat around watching Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, you can also do both. If yes, I'm, this if, is if true. I'm any example. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's really awesome, and I'm I'm so I love jumping off the cliff. I think it's it's really great. You and I have talked many times over the years about. Well, particularly after I closed the public space, and yeah. you know, you know how I figured that could work. And I think one thing I told you a few years ago is why I know it can work because of all the sales I make that are to people who are not in person. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I had added it up and I don't remember what it is, but it was like 50%, maybe even more of my sales were to people who weren't coming in. You know, they were because they're not, they weren't in New York. So um, it seemed logical to extrapolate from that. Um, So with that in mind, for me, it's easy to sell to people who aren't, you know, right in front of me because I had worked on this, you know, reputation for years and years and I had gotten a certain amount of press. So people felt like they could trust me. There was a legitimacy. But so how mm-hmm. do you do that? I mean, if you want to make a sale now and you're talking to someone and they can't see the prints, you're not in the same place. Yeah. Um, how do you handle that? Yeah. So that's a, a great question and is certainly a limitation that not, you know, operating virtually without a brick and mortar presents. And we're, we're kind of figuring out how to deal with that. But for instance, in Houston, I can have an artist ship work to me, you know, whether it's an exhibition print or the actual piece and show it in person to a collector, but but that's limited to, to collectors here in Houston. So, you know, I think that that is a challenge that especially as the world becomes more and more in person again that we'll see. So far, we haven't run into it as an actual problem, but we think we all know as appreciators of photography and art that seeing it in person changes everything. So, you know, again, thinking of of operating through these pop-ups is something we're really excited about, but yeah, it's great. Yeah, idea. I mean, it's a challenge. And the, the thing is, though, is that Shane and I do have networks from our, our prior relationships with people. Um, and I think one thing about Shane and I is we really value genuine, authentic relationships. So those relationships that we built at our prior institutions are are, are real. They're not, they're not just under the guise of our prior roles. And so 
we we're we're meeting with people constantly over Zoom. You know, I'm very excited to share that we have already sold some work. Yeah, oh, congratulations. Which it's thrilling. Yeah, and we're we're in conversations with some institutions that I can't share too much, but you know, working with a particular artist's archive that's really promising and exciting and so I think, you know, we have to think creatively about this. And there are there are these really real issues, but we're we're kind of taking it all as it comes. I know you're going to do great because I know you guys and I know how smart and sort of fearless and tenacious you are. So, but I will just say like just, you know, the old thing um, of having as many irons in the fire at one time as you possibly can handle really, really works in our business, mm-hmm. you know, because you know, that's just my advice. Just just never get too focused on, you know, just one thing because, yeah. you know, you have to guard against those disappointments. And, and it is so hard to sell work that the more people you can be in discussion with at any one time without losing your focus is just, in my experience, the way to go. So let me ask you, um, how does this work, this commercial and fine art, because neither of you, as far as I know, have experience in writing up commercial contracts or, um, but maybe yeah. you do. Well, you know, Shane, Shane is much more experienced in that area than I am, just as someone who has done commercial commissions himself. Right, because he's been hired, of course. I didn't even yeah. think of that. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's a real asset that he provides. But really, I mean, right now what we're doing is we, you know, have meetings with, with different photo editors and directors, whether we reach out to them or some of them have reached out to us, which is really exciting Very. to tell them about what we're doing and what these artists are doing. And at the end of the day for us, it's not about sending an artist on a, a $300 assignment to go shoot a project that's totally unrelated to their interests. Mm-hmm. For us, it's again, that matchmaking. So, you know, let's say one of our artists is in, you know, X location doing research for a project and knowing that ahead of time and kind of letting these other outlets know like, okay, if you have anything in this region during this time, we would be really interested. Or, you know, the the other side is some, some artists like Alejandro is one has so much work that's already been produced, but not published yet. So mm-hmm. that's another way of going about it, like pitching stories that that the artist has already created that that they'd like to publish. But one of the areas that I'm most excited about and, you know, that we're slowly kind of paving the way for, again, nothing is is going to happen overnight, but is doing these really thoughtful brand collaborations. So, again, it's not just like a one-and-done project. It's more of a, a longer-term engagement between the artist and the brand or, you know, the fashion brand or whatever, to really apply their approach to art making to a campaign, you know, whether that's like through video work or, or photo work. Um, I think it can go a lot of different directions. But as you've kind of said, this is new, but it's not new. You know, if you look at the history of photography, Elliot Erwitt and Walker Evans were out shooting on assignment. And sometimes, you know, the work that you would then see on the gallery walls came from the same contact sheet. Yep. So it's, again, like, how do we just make this seamless? Yeah, right now, we're in a lot of the kind of seed planting mode. 
of talking to different editors and producers about what we're interested in um, with hopes that, that something will materialize later. And then, of course, like hiring out people who have more expertise than us. So if we, we had someone request a producer for a shoot, well, our artists don't do that, but we do know other people who who do and who can. Yep. So kind of assembling that network as we go as well. Because you're going to wind up with makeup artists and hair people <laughs> on your on your roster. <laughs> I see it. I see it happening. What day is it today? March 29th, 2021. We have yep. it on. Um, we, we have it on the podcast <laughs> that I just made prediction. that prediction. Um, so let me... Let me ask you something, and I don't know if you can even answer this at this point because it's a hypothetical. Um, you can you can play politician and be like, I don't do hypotheticals. <laughs> but <laughs> what? How do we reconcile the fact that a lot of your artists are either really consider themselves activists or really socially conscious, and their work is really about you know sort of b- bigger issues of of society and and whatnot that we we're alluding to earlier. I mean, how do you how does someone like that shoot for a fashion brand when so many fashion brands are owned by giant corporations and there's, you know, so much uh, moral ambiguity is probably the nicest way I can put it associated with large corporations. So, I mean, how do you how do you reconcile being an artist who's sort of an activist and shooting for, you know, yeah. someone who's going to give you the big paycheck but may have some, you know, blood diamonds somewhere along the way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everything we're doing is very value driven at the end of the day. So if we know that a certain brand is totally misaligned with the values and interests of our artists, we're not going to pursue it no matter how big the paycheck might be, you know, and it's, it's hard. I mean, I think some people are like, this is so idealistic. <laughs> and in many ways, you know, it is. We we want we want to operate in a different way. So I think Shane and I will do as much research as as one can do to try and uncover if there are those blood diamonds before pitching it to an artist and then building in ways in which the artist can reclaim their work if if something were to come to light. The the best way to stay, I think, you know, true to your values and, and you know, be who you want to be in this space is something I think you're already doing, which is to have almost, you know, either very low or no overhead. I mean, exactly. To me, that's, that's a, you know, part of why I got rid of my public space is because with the public space, there are a lot of things, other things I felt I, I couldn't do. And there were felt like it was pushing me toward decisions I didn't feel comfortable making as far as, you know, what I was showing, et cetera. And so, you know, with low or no overhead comes an awful lot of freedom. You know, have that, you know, deadline of uh, just insane rent due, you know, staring you in the face. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of freedom to say no. And, you know, I think whether consciously or unconsciously, that was something driving Shane and I wanting to build this in the first place, the ability to be super flexible and free. Let me ask you, we've mentioned now a number of times about sort of the focus of your roster and, you know, identity being a very large part of that. 
Where does that come from for you and Shane? What is it about that that's so that you feel so passionately about? Um, I mean, you're not a person of color either as Shane. Where is it in your body, in your in your in your soul that that yeah. you know made you guys feel so strongly about this? I mean, I think for me, you know, which is all I can speak to, it comes from a, a lot of different directions. Some very personal, in that you know, I grew up as a white woman in the American South, in the deep Southeast Texas, which is basically Louisiana. Um, and you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college. There's there was a lot of misunderstanding and still is, or maybe not misunderstanding, but lack of really understanding what it is that I do. Mm-hmm. And I think from a young age, I saw the differences in the way that different people were treated um, in the little town that I grew up and it was never okay with me. It was always something I pushed back against. And even, you know, in my my graduate studies, I was focusing on photography in the American South, which is largely featured from an outsider's perspective. And when you dig into what is actually there, I mean, I think this is a history that will still be written. I mean, the numerous uh, photographers of color, you know, making photos in the American South in the early 20th century. Um, And ultimately, I, you know, I wrote my master's thesis on Richard Misrock's Petrochemical America. So why did this photographer of the American West, like so involved in kind of our identity as Americans, why did he look at the South? And what mm-hmm. are we being shown there? And really, in my, in my, from my view, my reading of that project is that, you know, we're being shown the many different strata, like strata upon strata of the landscape um, that is haunted by the history of slavery. And we can't remove that. So, I mean, that's kind of a a long way to say that these issues are issues I have been thinking about and concerned with for a long time. Even in the books I read, you know, I, one thing we didn't touch on is I worked for three years for Penguin Books and their advertising department for Viking and Penguin Books. And fell in love with Rebecca Solnit. And, you know, oh, the personal God, yeah. Yeah, the <laughs> personal is always bound up in the political and the cultural. And we can't separate the two, no matter how doggedly you say that they <laughs> that you're not doing work that's cultural. Like you are made from the culture that you right, exist I couldn't agree within. More. Yeah. So for me, I guess, you know, all work is that on one level. It's just how conscious of it it is. And then. Of course, you know, these artists are really pushing deep into that because something in them, like something in me, makes that a worthwhile and valuable pursuit. And for me, art just isn't about beauty or, you know, it can be. But for me, it's about creating a deeper engagement with the world. And it's kind of an indescribable feeling that excites me about good art that does that for me. So all of these artists, you know, I feel like they're showing us something really important about the world we live in. And that's the kind of work that that I want to push forward. Sounds like maybe you experience the sort of loneliness that can come with feeling misunderstood or not completely understood by the society closest to you yourself to, to some degree. 
Mm. Yeah, maybe. Well, and just just feeling like certain things were unfair and I wanted to understand why they were unfair, <laughs> you know, like to boil it down to kind of like a child's perspective, not understanding why, you know, this person in my family could talk about that person in that way or why I had certain opportunities that other people I feel like didn't have. But it's interesting because you also said so you also said that there are people in your family who don't understand what you do. Yeah, they <laughs> they still don't. <laughs> well, you know, so that's a first hand. It it may not be as oppressive, but it may give you a certain empathy, right? Because yeah, that, sure. that starting point of knowing at least to some degree what it feels like to be maybe not understood or some sort of outsider in your own community. Right. Right, right. Yeah, Sorry, I a, can't, you know, it's... No, it's, it's a keen observation, Sasha. <laughs> um, you can, I charge uh, five uh, cents <laughs> per session, just like Lucy from the Peanuts cartoon. Well, I'll be so coming can, back. <laughs> just, okay, we'll start. I'm going to PayPal, I'll send your PayPal invoice for five cents. <laughs> um, so let me just ask you before we wind down, is, is there anything else about assembly that you think would be interesting for listeners to know about? Um, I mean, do you want people sending you submissions? Would you like them not to send you submissions? Um, are you planning on doing more book projects? That's just something I'm interested in. Um, but yeah, just anything else? Of Yeah, well, you know, we do have, it's, it's an interesting time, because we have a lot of things in the pipeline, but a lot of those things we can't talk about. Yeah. Um, because they're not fully materialized yet. But you know, I definitely want people to check out Fumi's book because it's really special. It's called Index of Fillers, and it's about his time growing up in 80s, 90s era Japan and kind of navigating that elusive memory. And if you're not familiar with Fumi's work, he's really funny and really insightful, kind of drawing our attention to the mundane aspects of the world we live in as a way to think about borders and what divides us culturally and and cultural translation. So that book is almost sold out. If anyone is thinking about getting it, you should get it soon. Congratulations. Thank you. And to Fumi too. (laughs) So yeah, we do have some other book projects in the pipeline. And then something else that we're we're doing really soon. I don't know if this will be after the podcast launches or before, but We've decided to just dip our toe into the art fair world by participating in Expo Chicago, which is coming up in April, April 8th. So we have an exhibition that we curated there called Collaging Desire with Pacifico Solano's work and Alana Field's work. So we're pairing um, work from an artist on our roster with one off our roster. And Shana and I kind of informally call this ping pong, (laughs) like the way that these ideas can form. So, you know, doing projects like that is something that really excites us pairing, pairing work with, with artists on our roster with artists off our roster and kind of creating dialogue there. And then when it comes to, yeah, artists wanting to send us their work, I mean, we're, we're always open to look, we, of course, as I'm sure you have experienced, Sasha can't thoughtfully respond to everything. But because we've gotten so many requests, we are going to be launching pretty soon a special kind of like artist consulting opportunity that in my dream, we can ultimately raise money for so that any artist can participate. 
but where we can help you think through a book project or an exhibition, whatever it is that you're working on that that you need feedback on. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah, that's kind of one of the the things that has organically developed over this launch month because we've gotten so many requests of people wanting us to give them feedback on their work. And that's something we both love, love doing, and especially with student work. So hopefully that will continue evolving. But yeah, we we love to stay in touch with everyone. Well, that all sounds great. I mean, I, I do a fair amount of consulting and for the same reason I love doing it. I mean, in its purest form, you just get to talk with someone about their project, which is wonderful. And I, I really enjoy it also. And, uh, you know, try and make it work for, for people. So I think that, you know, that's, that's really great. Anyway, well, send Shane my very best. And, you know, maybe uh, someday when we can all be in person, we can, we can pick this up and have another conversation with, with all of us. Um, there's a little complicated to try and record three people in three different areas um, of the country. But um, yeah, he'd be excited and and we can have a jam sesh. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay, but we're not re- we can't record that. No, then, no, no, then no. I'm subject to blackmail. That's too much vulnerability even for me. <laughs> I I love talking with you and I'm I'm super psyched for you guys. I know. I mean, I really this this I mean this you know, so from the bottom of my heart, I, I know you guys are going to be so successful because you're both so smart and so sensitive and so decent. And um, I think that's um, just uh, the trifecta of being successful in our area. So, um, well, that I is high you, praise. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I wish you all the best. And of course, uh, just uh, anything uh, can help you with over here at Sasha Wolf Projects, just. Uh, give a call. Absolutely. And until next time, thank you. Thank you so much, Ashwin. It was great talking with you. It was a pleasure. Okay, bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is produced by me, Michael Chauvin Dalton of Real Photo Show. The executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and our theme music is by J. Walter Hawks. You can hear Photo Work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.